I would ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel. We are continuing our series in this study of Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, and uh, we covered the first half last week, which was a chunk. We're actually going to cover the second half this week, but these stories go together, so that's why I'm so reluctant to break them apart. Now, just to kind of catch you up to speed and give you a little bit of a background here, remember that at the end of chapter 4, Jesus had calmed a great storm on the Sea of Galilee, and just by speaking a word, brought the disciples to the place where they said, what manner of man is this? Who is this that he just speaks? And a storm, a violent storm, goes calm. And peace is a theme. It was environmental peace at that particular moment. But that is a gateway to other kinds of peace. And we're going to encounter more of that. So then, as they sailed through that storm and then experienced that calm, they landed on a shore where Jesus was clearly on a mission in spiritually enemy territory, we might say. And he engaged a man who was demon-possessed by, apparently, thousands of demons. Some of your scriptures would even use the term the maniac of Gadara. That's one way this is described, or the demoniac of Genesar. And Jesus engaged that man to deliver him. He exercised absolute authority over the demonic realm. A vast array of demons who would have opposed the work of God in that particular region. And Jesus shows up, heals the man completely. The people are so amazed that they, they say, what to Jesus? Depart from us. And he actually does. And then the man who's just been healed of this demon possession says, let me go with you. Let me be one of your followers. But Jesus in mercy says, actually, I want you to go right back into this community that is sending me away. But tell them what great things I've done for you. And so the man apparently continued to do that. And they were amazed by his presence and the fact that here he is. They all knew him, the formerly demon-possessed man that no one could control. But Jesus Christ had entered the community and made a difference. Jesus Christ had brought peace to that man. And so now Mark wants to continue some of the stories related to Jesus' life and ministry. And so in Mark 5, verse 21, we're going to begin reading, and I want to read to the end of the chapter. I know it's, it's a lengthy portion, but you'll see how beautifully these two stories are tied together and how they show us more of the great power of Jesus. And all of this is designed to answer the question of who is this? Who is this Jesus Christ? So follow along now as I read. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under, the many, under many physicians and had spent all that she had and, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? 
And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, as we read this story, we too are amazed We have a variety of responses to stories like these. For some of us, it's just hard to believe that it really happened. These are miracles. These are events that are not commonly known or experienced to us in this day. And in many ways, they were not common or ordinary experiences until Jesus arrived in that particular day. But he entered the world... The Son of the Most High God, as Mark describes him in this particular chapter, in order that we might know the living and true God. And Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And our desire this day, Lord Jesus, is that in seeing you by faith, we would know more of the living God. We would recognize you as the one sent from on high, the Son of God. Fully God in every way, yet fully man. The one who enters a world that is marked by uncleanness, by disease, by death itself. The one who is in desperate need of rescue, of cleansing, of healing and restoration. The one, a world that needs you, the only one who can accomplish these things. Would you open our hearts to receive your truth today? Would you give us spiritual eyes that can see it, spiritual ears that can hear it? Would you speak to each person here today in that particular way that would bring blessing and healing, that would bring hope and life? Oh, Lord Jesus, just please don't leave us to ourselves today. Come now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How long is 12 years? That number comes up several times in this chapter, doesn't it? 
You know, if you're a 12-year-old girl, well, that's your whole lifetime. And 12-year-olds often think that's a long time. If you're the parents of 12-year-olds, you say, it's not very long. As a matter of fact, as more time passes by, parents often say, where is the time going? If you're a woman, as this story describes, who has a chronic illness for 12 years, that can feel like an eternity, can't it? Doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment, day after day of pain and suffering and all of that emotional turmoil that comes with an illness that can't be healed. It's an eternity. I think it's interesting that God brings together two households that are both desperate One has a growing desperation over that period of 12 years. The other apparently comes into it quite suddenly. 12-year-old girls aren't supposed to be on the brink of death. And so this father comes, a desperate man, because his 12-year-old needs something that he doesn't have the capacity to give to his daughter. A woman whose age is not revealed to us, but whose life story is summarized here for us is equally desperate bankrupt of all resources that could potentially bring her help and hope at this particular time. And these are the stories that Mark 5 brings together for us in order that we may learn more of who Jesus is. Both households desperate for his touch. Well, as we work through this story, there are several different characters who come to the forefront. And the first, if you are looking at it in your text, is the crowd. And this is not new to us in our study of Mark. As Jesus has continued to perform miracles and heal people and cast out demons, the word is spread, and these crowds have been just thronging, as Mark says here. And and here we go again, verse 21, verse 24, verse 31. A great crowd gathered, a great crowd followed, thronged him. The crowd was pressing around, as the disciples say in verse 24. This is one of those scenes that's hard for us to fathom, but we understand it, don't we? I mean, I I think all of us would be eager to, to see this man work his miracles. And if you had children who were ill or you personally had some kind of ailment, you would want to come near and see him heal you. The second character, if you will, that appears in this story is a father. And if you noticed as we were reading through it, there are several things that Mark tells us about this man. First of all, he's a a man of significant reputation. He's a ruler of a local synagogue. That term ruler refers to his official capacity. The word president might be appropriate. They're presidents of various organizations and groups. We're familiar with that terminology. One author notes that officials of Jewish synagogues included a ruler or president who had the responsibility for conducting worship and instruction and the attendant who was in charge of the building and its contents. Both were laymen. A synagogue ruler was an important and highly respected person. That's who this man is who appears. But he's also a man in a desperate situation, isn't he? Do you notice that Mark actually names him? I wonder if Mark knew him personally. Or maybe he's even mindful that at this particular point when he writes the gospel, there would be others who might 
recall the name Jairus. These are some of those personal touches, though, in the Gospels that remind us this is real stuff happening to real people like us. It'd be a little bit like you rehearsing some of your family history and mentioning a particular name, and, and maybe you've got children who never met you know, Grandpa so-and-so, but you name him because you want people to connect to the fact that this is a real person. And Jairus is a real man, and uh, though he is a respected official in the local synagogue, he's a man just like you and me. We know enough about him. He's a family man. He's a father. He's a desperate man at this particular, at, at this particular moment. He falls at the feet of Jesus, Mark says. It's a sign of his humility. It's also a sign of honor. And Mark says, look at these words, he implored him earnestly. He's asking for something with, with all the earnestness that he can muster. And what is it? My little child, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And look at verse 24. He receives a hopeful response. The Bible simply says, and he went with him. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus was headed to do at that particular moment, but he's not lacking for any work or ministry opportunity at this point in his life, is he? Everywhere he goes, he's in demand. The great crowd around him. But now, at this moment, Jairus is the focus of his attention. Christ stops what he was previously doing, previously engaged in, and goes with Jairus. One author writes, Jesus shows himself to be interruptible, and he enters the desperation of this lonely parent. I don't know about you, but I don't always think of God as being interruptible. As a matter of fact, I have some of those moments where I think to myself, He's probably got more important things to think about or tend to at this moment than what's on my heart and soul. But part of the reason that God gives us these stories is to demonstrate in person what he's like. Remember, I, I included this in my prayer, I think it was. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so to see Jesus respond in this particular way is beautiful and powerful for those of us who struggle wondering if God would ever take notice of us in our need, whether we think it to be a great need personally or even just a small need. Jesus is interruptible. Now the story continues though, doesn't it? Because as they're on their way, now another unexpected turn of events unfolds for us. Verse 24 says, the great crowd followed him, and I'm sure that those who were close enough to hear Jairus say, my daughter's sick, near the point of death, come lay your hands on her, they're probably like, here we go, here we go, another miracle's about to be performed, but now, look at this surprising turn, verse 25, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and then Mark begins to tell us some things about her suffering, so he introduces this third character, if you will, there's the big crowd, just pressing around Jesus. It almost makes us feel claustrophobic to consider that. Then there's a desperate father who comes, a, a, a nobleman from the community, a man of high standing. He's desperate at this particular moment and needs Jesus to come. And now a woman shows up who has suffered for 12 years. Now let's talk about her suffering for just a moment because it's immediately obvious to us that it's a physical kind of suffering. And there's going to be more that I'll add here, but just 
to, just to make sure that we understand, 12 years she has struggled with this disease, as Mark uses that term. And it's, it's interesting that if you do a little research, you'll find that this term is used in other places to actually refer to, to a whip or a scourge. And this term indicates its intense suffering. So this is not just a, a, an, an illness that inconveniences her. This is an illness that is like a, a whip inflicting pain day after day, an instrument of suffering. And then Mark writes, she had suffered much under many physicians. And while he doesn't give the details, we can imagine that having gone to doctor after doctor after doctor, they probably had tried all kinds of procedures or techniques or, or pharmaceutical treatments. She had suffered much under many physicians. If you read Luke's account of the same story in Luke's gospel, chapter 8, verse 43, he actually includes the little phrase, she could not be healed by anyone. Mark's phrases was no better but grew worse. And then Mark also adds, she had spent all that she had. Some of you have experienced significant illness and the hospital bills mount in a hurry, don't they? It's staggering the cost of health care. And while we don't know what kind of cost she had incurred it's clear she's bankrupt spent all that she had there's nothing left for her so the physical suffering the financial suffering but you know there's also spiritual suffering that she was enduring mark doesn't elaborate this side of the suffering I think in part because he assumes we might be carrying some of our Old Testament reading and knowledge forward into the New Testament. Certainly the Jewish community fully understand the nature, understood the nature of the spiritual suffering. If you were to go back to Leviticus 15, and I want to ask you to turn there right now, but in verses 19 through 30, you would actually encounter the word unclean 13 times in those 10 verses. And the uncleanness that's being described there includes physical conditions like this woman was experiencing. And what was prescribed in that Jewish context of Old Testament law is that such a disease made her ceremonially unclean. It also meant that if she touched another person, they were unclean for at least a day until they had gone through the proper cleansing ceremonies. If she touched furniture or cooking utensils or even household objects those objects were unclean people who touched them were unclean and would have to go through uh, the ceremonial cleansing so that they could re-engage with God in public worship or engage with other people in those spiritual acts of service so every day this woman who is not only suffering physically who's not only seen her financial resources depleted is also reminded that spiritually she is an outsider 
And if she cared about family, if she cared about friends, she would not intentionally move toward them, touch them physically, or engage with them even in their household in a way that she would defile those environmental objects or pieces of furniture because it would defile the whole clan. So here again, much like the demoniac we just looked at a week ago, is an outsider. Someone who's trying to operate within a community that has very strict rules and expectations. And and as she's there, this disease prevents her from being what she ought to be. Isolated and excluded from the relationships that all of us were created for. This is a desperate woman. I cannot help but think that her long absence from that close relationship, whether it be with family or friends or even the synagogue, see, she wouldn't have been able to enter the synagogue on a Sabbath, not without risking defiling those who were gathering. But knowing the nature of people, I cannot help but think that the community had also talked about Now, this is me. It's not in the scriptures, but we know human nature. Some would have done it out of legitimate concern, wouldn't they? Just like some of you. You don't don't gossip, but you share things that are of concern to your heart. Others probably would have gossiped. And knowing the kind of system and that they were a part of, the, the religious legalism of that, there are probably even those who were saying, what has she done that's so bad that God would punish her in this way? Untold suffering that she has endured. But she knows that if she can get to Jesus, there's hope. I wonder if you have ever felt isolated and excluded. That's almost a universal human experience at some point. Some of you feel that way right now. You can be seated in a room like this with a hundred other people and still feel like you are all alone, can't you? Some of you work in offices where you've just always felt like the outsider. People are polite. But nobody ever says to you, hey, you want to go grab some lunch? Hey, you want to get together after work Friday night? Hey, you want to bring your family over and watch the big game Saturday? The most you get is a somewhat friendly smile, maybe a nod of the head. One of those casual, how's it going kind of comments. But nobody ever really draws near to you. And if truth be told, when we read stories like it in the Gospels, you, you really start to connect with a character like this woman. Because you say, I, nobody's declared me spiritually unclean at this moment, but I might as well be. Because I feel like I'm isolated and excluded. Do you know part of the reason Jesus entered the world is because he knows people like us who feel isolated and excluded need him. We don't just need a truth for life. We don't just need, you know, six principles that are going to help us navigate the week to come. We need real relationship. 
And he comes to offer that. Now, this woman has heard the reports that have been spreading around. And we've read enough in the Gospels to know there are all kinds of reports being spread. Jesus healed the man with a withered hand. He cast out demons. He's preached this and taught that. And he's done all kinds of miracles. Verse 27 says, she had heard the reports about Jesus. And oh, what they were. And she responds to what she has heard and says, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And she's right. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus, in all of his perfection, in all of his power, in all of his glory, is actually a perfect match for those of us who are defiled by our sin, who are worn out by our disease, who feel isolated and excluded? It's a perfect pairing. And she acts on the basis of what she has heard. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched the hem of his garment. And that is really an extraordinary act of faith. It's easy for us at a moment like this to say, well, of course you'd go to Jesus. He's the miracle worker. But think of all that she had to work through. Not just the physical throng that was present, but even the, the religious expectations of the community that she was a part of. The ones who knew her were probably saying, stay away from me. I'm going to be ceremonially defiled if you touch me. And here you are forcing your way through this crowd, probably pushing and, and worming her way through this crowd, touching who knows how many people. And maybe her decision to touch the hem of the garment instead of the Lord himself is a sweet effort on her part to preserve something of his ceremonial cleanness. I, I don't know. Again, that's speculation on my, on my part. But the report of his power is so compelling that she risks public humiliation and more misunderstanding in order to draw near and be healed. And to me, that's just sweet evidence of the desperation of her heart. And it's sweet evidence of the fact that the Lord loves those who, out of their desperation, press toward him. He delights in this. And each time I read this story, through the years, I come to this point and, and I begin to search my own soul and say, Lord, what are the points of desperation for me? I'm desperate for him to change me. I'm desperate for him to, to give me the kind of growth or victory or to heal some wound in my soul. And I think if we pause for a moment and begin to think of the ways that, in spiritual terms, life seems to be hemorrhaging away at this moment, then we would find the basis to press near to Jesus by faith. Maybe for you it's the continual barrage of financial challenges that have actually not only drained your bank account, but your heart is just drained of hope right now. You're like, we're never recovering from this. Maybe it's the opposition of family and friends to what you are attempting spiritually at this moment, and your heart is in the right place. You're seeking to honor the Lord, but it, it has just kind of bled the life out of your relationships. Your soul has no life or energy at this particular moment. Maybe it's the continual criticism of a spouse or employer. Those are the kinds of things that can empty your soul of a sense of strength or life or motivation or energy. What is the thing that is hemorrhaging in you today? You know, when we are finally willing to stop seeking the remedy in everything and everyone other than Jesus, then we are positioned to be healed. 
It almost seems heartless. And I don't mean to like judge the woman's spirituality to say, well, she should have come to God 12 years ago when she was first diagnosed. That, how unkind. Jesus wasn't actually engaged in public ministry 12 years before this. But I do think there's a lesson for us that had she not come to Jesus on that day, but had spent the day trying to scrounge up another 10 bucks, as it were, to go to another doctor, she would have missed something extraordinary. And sometimes we, there's something in human nature, isn't it, that wants to do the self-help thing. I've shared with you on a number of occasions, I love going to YouTube. I call it YouTube University. Because if there's something broken in my car, the first thing I'm going to do is, is put the little cool scanner uh, up under the dash that my brother-in-law gave me that gives me a code. And then I type in that code, and then I find out what the problem is, and then I go to YouTube to see if I can fix it. Because I'm too cheap to pay my mechanic friend. That's like last resort. Well, there's something in us that wants to just heal ourselves of all this stuff, right? Self-help. And we need to be humble enough and honest enough to say, there are things that I can't heal about myself. I need Jesus. Well, and this is where the fourth and central character in the story really begins to show us his glory again. Look at verse 29. She touches him. And Mark just simply records, immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Oh, that's just extraordinary. And Jesus, verse 30, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. I'm struck by the fact that this woman's faith draws divine power and energy out of Jesus. She's not the only one who's touching him, right? So what's the difference? She touches him with faith. The Bible doesn't say she has great faith. It doesn't say she has perfect faith. It doesn't say she has mature faith. It just says power goes out of him. And that she had touched him with faith. Now look at what Jesus does next. This really is amazing because he's not just trying to... He's not just trying to fill in a, a simple blank of, who touched me? He, he's actually asking that question because if, if she knows she's healed, so what's she going to do next in her mind? Sl try to slip out of that crowd and be on her way. But he actually wants to position her for testimony, public testimony. Probably not something that she was interested in. He draws her out with two questions. Who touched my garments? And then the disciples respond, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Well, he's looking for more than identity at that point, as if we could say, oh, she's the one. He's actually looking for personal testimony. Now, again, think in the, think in the larger story. There have been a number of occasions, and even at the end of the story, we're going to have another one where Jesus says, don't tell. But then there are other times where he says to people, you go tell. It's what he said to the, to the man he healed of all those demons. You go back to the city, back to the country, tell them what great things I've done for you. Well, he, he draws this woman into the middle of this thronging crowd 
in order to position her to speak truth about what has happened. Look at verse 33. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, I think that's a little summary statement that, that simply pushes us back to the things that Mark had just told us about her 12-year history. The fact that she had gone to physician after physician after physician and had suffered greatly under their hands and had emptied her bank account. She tells the whole truth concerning all that had been involved here. Tells the whole truth concerning her faith. Perhaps even saying, you know, I, I, I didn't want to inconvenience you, but I just knew that if I could touch the hem of your garment that I would be healed. We don't know all that is included, but this one little phrase says that it was an extensive testimony. She told the whole truth of her faith in Jesus Christ. And as if adding his own divine amen, look at verse 34, Jesus affirms the importance of her faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Now that little term, daughter, that he uses, actually is, he, he could have used other terms that would be more generic, like woman or ma'am, um, but he actually uses a term that allows him to convey to her, I really care for you. It's not the same term that Jairus uses for his 12-year-old daughter, but it's really close. Again, you see the God of the universe who's come in flesh speaking in very tender, personal terms to desperate people. Do you believe that God Most High would ever speak to you with such an affectionate, tender term? If you struggle with that, the answer is right before you. And the answer is an emphatic, yes, he would and does. Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. This is one of those great mysteries to me. I love it. I believe it. And Jesus is affirming what previously in, intrigued us. But here there's something that he affirms that, that her faith has been the conduit, if you will, that draws power out of him, out of God most high, out of the son of the most high. Your faith is a means of God's powerful working. Don't ever think that your request out of those desperate hours are somehow an imposition on God or somehow it would dishonor him to admit that you are broken or weak or just disease-ridden with your sin. But when you cry in desperate hope, looking to him for healing, for help, for supply, whatever it is, you actually honor him. And he delights in that faith. And so here he affirms, your faith has made you well. You are saved. You are delivered. You are made whole as a result of the exercise of your faith. Now look at this pronouncement because Jesus pronounces a word of peace and healing. It's peace and healing. He says to her, go in peace and be healed of your disease. That term go in peace has reference to her spirit. And a person who suffered hasn't really known peace in her soul, right? But now Jesus says, I've made your soul whole. Go in that wholeness. And the corresponding thought, be healed of your disease. You're whole in health. She may not have actually been thinking 
if I can be healed of this disease, then my soul will be at peace as well. Whether she was or not, Jesus says, that's what I'm doing. And now you can go on your way completely whole. What a powerful, powerful God this is. What a powerful, powerful Christ this is. And who stands there watching and listening to the text again? Now what happens at that particular moment? It almost seems like the delay has, has brought on an unexpected tragedy. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And here we are again. Why trouble the teacher any further? Some of us really wrestle with this thing of feeling like we're just an imposition on God. And whatever we bring to him is just going to be an inconvenience. Trouble. Why trouble God any further with this thing that's on your heart today? Let's just kind of accept where things are. Make the best of it. You know, maybe Jairus at this point should say, oh, thank you, Jesus, but you can get back to what you were doing. I'll just go home and make funeral plans. It's reasonable, humanly speaking, isn't it? But it's not reasonable from Christ's vantage point because he is on mission and he wants to demonstrate his power and he wants to be, bring blessing to desperate people. And so that's where we come to the third big part of this story, the power of Christ to raise the dead. We've seen the power of Christ to heal a diseased woman, but now, now he's going to exercise power that is staggering. And look at verse 36. First of all, he addresses the rational fear of Jairus. It's not unreasonable that, that Jairus would be sliding into sorrow and grief. But Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. And Jesus is not denying the reality of the little girl's death. He's calling Jairus to believe that this news of his daughter's death is not the final word. And at that moment, Jairus is being tempted to let his fear, not faith in Christ, seize control of his heart and mind. And some of you this morning are, are very tempted for rational reasons to let your fear dictate your response. And Jesus stands before you through the tr truth of this word saying, don't let your fear dictate your next steps. Believe in me. Do not fear the news of this report. Do not fear the consequences you are assuming will come to pass. Do not fear, and think about this too, as a dad, oh, wouldn't you be saying to yourself, if I'd only gone sooner, why did I wait? Why didn't I find Jesus yesterday? I mean, parents will deal with that kind of stuff. We all deal with that kind of stuff. So who knows all that was flooding Jairus' heart at this moment, but Jesus is saying, do not fear, only believe. He's calling Jairus to believe that the final destiny of his dear little daughter rests with him. And you know, the remedy to our fears is always that we place our faith, weak, trembling, imperfect as it is, we place that faith fully in him. Look at verses 38 and 39, because Jesus addresses the understandable sorrow of the mourners. When he arrives and says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? I mean, that, that catches them off guard, doesn't it? And commotion is a word that speaks the noise of turmoil. I've never had personal experience, but I've read historical accounts and certainly even heard more modern day 
uh, accounts and even seen some video clips of, of mourners in Middle Eastern countries. And they're much more expressive than, than many of us are here in Western context. And we may shed our tears, but um, I, at least my family heritage is not such where we would enter a funeral home and there would be loud outpourings of grief. But in this setting, the commotion, commotion is a great word for it. Because people would have been outside the home, probably some even inside, and they, it's just part of the culture. They are wailing. And it probably would, would have been really loud and imposing. Jesus steps in and says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? And then notice verse 39. He addresses the condition of the child. The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, that's almost insulting, isn't it? And let me just say, here's part of the reason I don't believe some of the skeptics who would say, well, see, she hadn't really died, even Jesus said. He's just in a, like, comatose state. No, those mourners knew death when it entered a household. These people haven't made a mistake and started the grieving process over a little girl who slipped into a coma. Rather, what we need to see is that this is the perspective of the one who, according to John's gospel, is the resurrection and the life. From Jesus' vantage point, death never has the final word. And that's what's hope for us as his followers, isn't it? So he's not trying to insult anyone, and he's not trying to say it's not a real death. You reported it incorrectly to the father here. No, it's just his perspective. And they laughed at him. One author writes, the professional mourners represent the hardcore realists of every age who decide when empirical realities have foreclosed on divine possibilities. Did you catch that? Empirical realities have foreclosed on divine possibilities. So they're looking at the evidence. She's dead. This is a sad occasion. The only thing left for us to do is to begin the mourning process, the burial process. The empirical realities are staring us in the face. But Jesus is present as the one who is the resurrection and the life with all power available to him. And he knows that there are divine possibilities that this crowd is not considering. And so he acts in power to bring blessing. He acts with resurrection power. Look at verses 40 and 41. First of all, he puts the disbelieving ones outside. I think that's a nice touch. And then he guides mom and dad and those three disciples and takes them in where the child was. And now, according to Mark's testimony, he takes her by the hand, which again, remember that for the Jews, touching a dead body meant ceremonial uncleanness. We covered that a few weeks back. But it's no threat to Jesus He's not worried about ceremonial uncleanness at this moment. He is concerned about resurrecting a little dead girl. And he takes her by the hand and speaks these words. And Mark's going to give us the translation, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And with those powerful words, Mark's testimony is that immediately, verse 42, the girl got up. Nobody had to stand around and wait for the words to take effect. They didn't add anything to the words. 
When the resurrection and the life speaks, people get up from their deathbeds. I'd love to just park for a few minutes and talk about the hope of our resurrection as his followers. It's going to be a great day of celebration when this same Jesus speaks over all those who have died in faith and says, rise. There's another resurrection that's also going to happen of those who have died not believing in Jesus Christ, and that will be a fearful resurrection, but that will have to wait for another day. And look at the effect of this work. Verse 42, they were immediately overcome with amazement. The terminology there is actually really close to our word for ecstasy. They're ecstatic. And why wouldn't you be? Ecstatic because the daughter you love has been restored to life. Ecstatic because you've just seen something that defies human explanation and experience. They're out of their minds with joy. That's what Jesus does. So we go back to the end of chapter 4 where the disciples said, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Who then is this? that even a legion of demons are under his control and he is able to restore a man to sanity and health and peace that nobody else can control. Who then is this, that a woman who could not be cured by any other doctor and had exhausted all of her resources could come to him and just touch the hem of his garment and be healed? Who then is this, that a man whose dear daughter has died would raise her to life again? Mark's answer earlier in chapter 5 is, this is Jesus, son of the Most High. He's so much more than a powerful teacher in his day. He's so much more than a religious leader that we ought to just follow and set as our example. He is the living God come in flesh. And he ultimately is going to go to a cross and take on him the sins of the world in order that all of us might be rescued and delivered from the sin that oppresses and dominates us, that makes us guilty and worthy of eternal condemnation before the Most High God. This is Jesus, and he says repeatedly in this gospel, Believe in me. Believe in me. I want you to bow your heads with me for a moment and just think through. Which of these characters do you most relate to? What is the point of desperation in your soul today? It may be the restoration of a relationship that has been broken by sin or misunderstanding. And as you seek to find a solution or repair, is Jesus standing before you today saying, come to me, believe? What creates commotion and turmoil in your soul? Jesus worked a mighty peace in the soul of the woman who had been ill for 12 years. He brought peace to that household that was sorrowing and grieving. Would you just call on him and say, Jesus, I am in such great turmoil today. I'm as desperate as Jairus. I'm as desperate as this woman with the issue of blood. Would you just admit to him that all of your attempts to bring peace to your soul have failed and that you're looking to him 
and Him alone. Some of you are in turmoil because when you really take time to look within, there's such dark and ugly sin. You've hurt a lot of people or maybe even just a handful, but there's, there's actually a deeper issue than a physical need. There's sin that you're aware of, and it just dogs you. And in the middle of the night, sometimes you wake up and just say, oh, how can I be delivered from this feeling of guilt? And the answer is through the blood of Jesus. Would you call on him right now and just say, Jesus, forgive me. Take away this sin. Take away my guilt. Show me a path of restoration to the people that I've hurt. Jesus, give me peace. Your faith is what connects you to Jesus. So just reach for him from your heart right now. Father, we love these stories because they not only show us people who are struggling with all kinds of things that mark and characterize our lives right now, but they show us a great Savior, the Son of the Most High. We marvel because He has power not only to heal people of diseases and cast out demons and overcome darkness and, and death itself, but He calls people to come to Him to experience the forgiveness of their sins, to know the gift of eternal life. And we thank you for that. Would you continue to do your work in each of our hearts this morning? We thank you and praise you that you are who you reveal yourself to be and that you do everything you have promised to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.